0: Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020 as of this opening i've read perishables the first book of my five book vampire and urban fantasy series the withrow chronicles published by falstaff books aka falstaffbooks.com if you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself head over to bit.ly that's a bit dot l-y slash perishables link now i'm reading from my short stories and other works and occasionally i'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called public domain radio thanks for listening So welcome to social distancing radio
1: thank you i am Teresa glover i am the author of the caitlin kelly monster hunter series with falstaff books and i am also one of the misdirected adventurers on the calamity jane which is a spin-off of authors and dragons podcast we play DD really badly but better than the boys <laughs> um, and I am also an editor at Fallstaff Books. I work behind the scenes at Authors Essentials and also Continual, The Con That Never Ends.
0: Wow. Gosh, you've got a lot going on. Yes. <laughs> you stay Just busy. a few
1: things in the works.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I am so delighted that you're here for Public Domain Radio. I'm glad to Public be here. Public Domain there. Radio is is like a special series within social distancing Mm -hmm. radio. And so uh, I don't edit it. I don't deal with any of that Mm -hmm. stuff. The point being to recreate the experience of if two people or if, if people had walked into a shared reading that we had like a dragon con or something. So uh, what are you going to read first?
1: I'm going to read a portion of one of my favorite short stories ever. Um, the Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe.
0: Which I love. Personal it's, favorite.
1: It's, it's fantastic and it's creepy and it is a little on the nose, but I promise not to get too triggery in the section that I read. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I know for a fact that it's a favorite of at least one of our like power listeners. So yes. I am, I'm certain that they're going to be delighted to hear this. Excellent. I am definitely like I said it's my
1: it's one of my favorites um when anybody ever asks me about like free short stories that they can find online that's definitely one of the ones I recommend along with um the yellow wallpaper or hills like white elephants but this one is just my favorite because it's so creepy
0: yeah I love this one yes. well fired up
1: all right it was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite in many palaces. However, such suites form a long and straight vista while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand so that the view of the whole extant is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different. As might have been expected for the, from the Duke's love of the bazaar, The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at the right and left. In the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked upon a closed corridor of which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closed closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling into heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of any of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro and depended from the roof, there were no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly lit the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or back chamber the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was within this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of the hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of that time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for color and effects. He disregarded the decorum of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure. He was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and it was in his guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these dreams writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps and anon there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now the music swells and the dreams live And rise to and fro more merrily than ever before, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which streamed the rays of the tripods.
0: Oh. (laughs)
1: Isn't it great?
0: I love that story. Yes. I I think it's possibly, I don't know. I think it is possible that my favorite part of the story is when he describes the clock striking the hour and everything yeah. stopping and everyone feeling anxious and afraid and like yeah. all the musicians turning to each other and being like, <laughs> we won't. We, that won't happen to it's us. It's not going to
1: happen again. It's fine. Everything's yeah. fine.
0: <laughs> everything is fine. It's all yes. going to work out.
1: Exactly.
0: I love that story so much.
1: Yeah. I remember the first time I read it, I think I was probably middle school or high school, something like that. And just, Breaking out in goosebumps when I read that story. I'm like, oh my god, the classics can be this good. I I need to go read some more of them.
0: Yeah, for real. That that stuff. That's that class. That that story is like a masterclass in writing a good short story.
1: Absolutely, and through ambiance mostly. Yeah, because there, there isn't a whole lot that happens in the story, except it builds and builds and builds and then the hammer drops.
0: Yeah. So good. So good. Oh, I love that. Yes. Is that connected to what you're reading of your own work or is that simply a favorite?
1: No, that's just simply a favorite. Um, And and there's
0: nothing wrong with that. I love that.
1: (laughs) What I figured I would read is a little more snarky from my stuff to kind of lighten (laughs) the mood. (laughs) And, and that's one of the things that I tend to do. I like to take scary things and lighten them up um, a little bit if you can, or take light things and make them creepy. Um, one of the stories that I've been working on recently a little bit is, you know, a light and fluffy tale of human trafficking. So, hey. yeah, exactly.
0: Like you so do. That's
1: kind of the sense of humor that goes into <laughs> what I build.
0: <laughs> It's a heck of a setting for a workplace comedy, you know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That's amazing. Um, I feel very strongly though, that like, I love to do the same. And I feel like there's a lot of power there in both directions because both the creepy and the funny, they turn on the same hinge, subverted expectation. Exactly. And if you can get humor to make somebody relax a little, so they jump a little harder at the scary stuff. Oh, that to me is just like primo.
1: Yes. And it's, it's where the, the scary stuff creeps up on you and it just kind of bites you when you weren't expecting it and you never heard it coming. You just feel the fangs. And it's, that's the kind of horror that I like. Um, one of my favorites was. um midsummer. <laughs> Because it's just this slow burn and everything's fine and everything's fine. And holy crap, nothing is fine.
0: (laughs) My husband and I talked the whole way home from that movie about like, just the, the many, many things we loved about it. Yeah. That is an instant favorite.
1: Yes. And The Witch was another one. I saw that one in a theater and there weren't many people in the theater but the people behind me didn't get it because they left halfway through and I'm just leaning closer and closer and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Like, you know, my hand in my mouth going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Throughout the yeah. whole movie.
0: Oh, that that is probably, I don't know. It's it is it's in brilliant. the top five <laughs> horror movies ever made for me yep. easily.
1: Exactly. And, and what I really liked about it was that it was so intelligent that, if you didn't really understand the history it probably wouldn't hit you but if you knew the history and the setting of the story and then you watch it it's even worse than just yeah. what's on the film
0: yeah uh so incredibly carefully crafted yeah, as a film it was
1: beautiful
0: uh, okay wow <laughs> I just love that movie so much. I,
1: yeah, it's, it's great. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I crowed pretty hard about it for a while. And I've had people tell me that they watched it and either didn't get it or didn't find it scary. I'm like, you have to focus on this movie. You can't be doing 12 other things. And this is coming from someone who can't sit still. But with The Witch, you have to watch every detail. And yeah. it will scare the crap out of you.
0: Yeah. So good so good just like dense with meaning and, and yes. reference okay and
1: layers upon layers of stuff oh.
0: it's one of those things that like i watch it and i'm like oh, i'll never make anything that good you know
1: <laughs> exactly damn <laughs> you so Why have you already exists? made this
0: <laughs> right i'm so glad it exists though oh um, one of
1: those you just walk away from and you're like i i don't know Like, what am I doing?
0: (laughs) I first watched it uh, on a beach trip with a bunch of friends. Uh (laughs) And afterwards, I was like, okay, everybody, let's go hit the beach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And they're going, sunlight anywhere, please.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. They were just like, what are we doing watching this (laughs) on our vacation? You know? Hey, that's my idea of a good time. So, totally. (laughs) It was so good. Um, So what are you going to read for us from your work?
1: I am going to read a part of the newest book in the Caitlin Kelly trilogy called Trouble in Mind. Um, And this is the, the premise that's built up to this point is Caitlin really just wanted to take a vacation. She was headed to New Orleans with the prime reason of taking a vacation in the big easy. And as soon as she landed, she got caught up in work and hasn't been able to catch a breath since. Um, in the first two books, let's just say shit happens. And yeah. it doesn't really let up for her at any point. And, and things start to catch up to her in book three. Um, I, I say that it gets a little bit heavy But there are moments where you just kind of have to laugh because that's life. And that's one of the scenes that I have here is her being frustrated with life, but confronting people that will make you laugh because they're just right at the moment when she can't stand them. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yes. So let's torture Caitlin for a little bit. Excellent. The recipe for my personal hell will undoubtedly include fragile antique furniture, delicate teacups, bitter tea, and small talk. (laughs) Thanks to the old world tastes of my hostess Helen, a.k.a. Hell, the Norse goddess of the underworld, I've logged plenty of time precariously balanced on spindly-legged chairs while trying not to fidget every minute locked in one position while keeping my weight off the chair counted as both a workout and torture. Definitely skipping squats this week, whether Sister Sister Betty approved or not. I certainly understand your preference for neutrality, I said, my teacup rattling on its saucer, but this goes beyond political abstinence. I've been attacked twice. Are all hunters so dramatic? Violetta asked with a coquettish flutter of her lashes. Dramatic? I tried not to rise to her bait. Yes, dear, you're familiar with the concept? The beguiling leader of the Nightmare Clan put her finger to her lips, her almost black curls bouncing. It's one of my favorite qualities. My question is mere curiosity, because if all hunters are like you, I'll have to, her hungry grin sent chills down my spine, pay more attention. My stuttered tumble of words demused her and frustrated me. That, I said when I finally recovered, isn't what we were talking about. No, but it's far more amusing. Violetta leaned forward and lifted the teapot, glancing at Helen. A refresh, Lady Helen? The two women exuded casual elegance. Despite the informal conversation and their ostensibly relaxed postures, they moved with an awareness I aspired to achieve, surpassing Sister Betty's enviable skills. Outsiders might have assumed them harmless, but I saw them for what they were, dangerous, formidable, downright terrifying. No matter what I'd wanted, I'd get nothing without their full knowledge and they'd probably screw me over in the process. Oh my, Violetta sighed, disappointed. I think I broke her. Glancing around the room, I realized she meant me. Others came before her, Helen said. Others will come after. But I like this one. Violetta's prissy pout still managed to be endearing. Zeke always said I played too rough. He wasn't wrong. Helen took a bird-like sip of her tea. The mention of her former colleague and clan council member Zykeros made me stiffen in anticipation of reprimand or retribution. I'd killed him at the compact where I'd met Violetta and been dubbed representative for the human realm. Or, as I'd come to think of it, my through the looking glass moment. I'd known other dimensions existed, of course, but I hadn't been aware of the conclave of supernats or how it kept the balance between realms in place where the borders thinned. The last compact hadn't known the source of the disturbances that allowed nightmares to move freely in the human realm, only that Zekros, emboldened by them, pushed for its unrestricted use as a feeding ground and promised to kill off the entire planet while making me watch. If he considered Violetta's play rough, I couldn't imagine what that might include. Violetta's intense scrutiny made me feel naked. What? I asked, paranoia taking over. You, my dear. Her stare didn't waver. You've lost that interesting spark. I haven't lost anything, I said, but it felt like a lie. Neither woman spoke for what felt like an eternity. I reminded myself not to squirm. Helen broke the silence first. What you've lost won't hinder you. She said, slid her glove-covered left hand across the surface of the tea table between us before setting her cup down. Not yet, at least. When it becomes evident, you won't be able to ignore it. What does that mean? The look she leveled at me reminded me that goddesses feel no obligation to explain their cryptic pronouncements. (laughs) Yet rather than shrivel, I stared back, patient and implacable, until she deigned to reply. What do you want, Hunter? I grow tired of this. As if responding to her mood, her massive wolf-dog-demigod brother rounded a low couch with a warning grumble, teeth bared in a snarl. Up, Finn, I said, trying to quell my rush of nerves. Good to see you, too. Helen's irritation drew my attention. My patience is not infinite, Miss Kelly.
0: I love it. (laughs) Thank you. I love it so much. You do such a good job of capturing, like, the flavor of New Orleans. Thank you. And you, you managed to wrap that up in like supernatural characters really well, because like that whole notion of like antiques and fine China. And also it's dangerous, you yes. know, like that's new Orleans for me, like yeah, my absolutely. limited new Orleans experiences.
1: And my, my experience with new Orleans is very limited as well, which is why I will always have Caitlin B a tourist or a transplant, she will never be a native because I know that as someone who has not personally lived there, I will never understand it to that level. So I need Caitlin to always look at it through that lens and hopefully capture what it feels like from that perspective and not try to, I don't know, not try to make up some experience that I don't have in that regard. I don't want to offend people who are there I don't want to, you know, presume something that I really don't know, but I still want to bring that flavor to somebody who hasn't been there.
0: Yeah, such a great job. That's oh, you. I feel like you definitely achieve that. Thank you. Um, I love that. It's so great. I love the tension in that scene also, and I love yeah. the fact that she knows that she is the mouse being played with by two cats.
1: Oh, absolutely. These, these two women are so far beyond her league and she knows it and they don't care and they're (laughs) going to torture her and they're going to continue to torture her because they are just so much fun to play
0: with. Yeah. It's, it's a weird kind of like, it's almost supernatural hazing. Like you get this sense that they think that if she can handle this for long enough, then okay, you know.
1: Oh, and there's always machinations behind the, the works too, because there's, there's things going on that I haven't even yet alluded to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. I love that sort of complex world also. Because like just, I, I don't know, I, I love that kind of setting. I, I really to...
1: enjoy it, but I struggle with it <laughs> mm-hmm. because I really want to get all of that in there and have those layers of intrigue. And I'm lucky so far in that I've accidentally put stuff in, I can go back and use. (laughs) So now I have to be a little more careful and intentionally plant that stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I do a lot of like throwing out random details. so that later I I can be like, see, I I meant it all along.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I got stuck at one point when writing this one and I was like, I need something to do X, Y, Z what am I going to do so that it's not some deus ex machina thing where, you know, this magical solution comes up because I don't want it to be that. So I'm madly flipping through the previous book and I'm like, there it is. It's right there. I'm a genius. I left it for myself.
0: (laughs) I I think my favorite uh, writing advice from Neil Gaiman was uh, the job of a second draft is to make it look like you knew what you were doing.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Where do people find you online?
1: The easiest place to find my stuff right now is at fallstaffbooks.com. And you can also follow me on Amazon. I do have a website um, or a blog rather. It's teresaglover.wordpress.com. The website will be coming in hopefully the near future, but you know, 2020 happened. So, yeah. um, I'm also on Twitter, on Facebook, just as Teresa Glover. So you can find me there.
0: Good deal. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. (laughs)
1: Cowabunga, dude.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.